Hi, I'm Katrina Ingram. Welcome to Back to School Again, the show for midlife learners recorded at the Norquest College Innovation Studio. We talk with midlife learners about their educational journey, sharing their stories about how they are balancing the demands of school, work, and family, and where they hope their educational pursuits will take them. When you think about archaeologists, you might have a vision of Indiana Jones, Tomb Raider, or Jurassic Park. My guest today is Robin Wojwitka, a real-life archaeologist who spent a good part of his career with the Archaeological Survey of Alberta. In 2012, Robin decided to go back to school to pursue a PhD in Earth and Atmospheric Sciences, and he's recently graduated. Dr. Robin Wojwitka, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now let's start with the obvious question. Is being an archaeologist anything like the Hollywood versions that we see in, say, an Indiana Jones movie? Um, partly. Uh, a lot of archaeologists will say, no, absolutely not, but that's not true. We have a lot of adventure in our job. Um, the things that are different are we're not treasure hunters or grave <laughs> robbers. Uh, we have ethics and a lot of paperwork to go through and a lot of lab work to do. So 99% of your time is not what you see in the movies. But I've had adventures in Baja, California, talking to federales. I've been almost struck by lightning on a mountaintop in Alberta, bear attacks in the tundra in the Yukon, you know, things like this. So it can get pretty hairy out there. Sounds like you need to get danger pay for that part of your job. That would be great, but we don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell me what led you into the field of archaeology. Um, When I was young, I really liked junk. Uh, Like, you know, when you drive by farmer's fields and you see just a junky field, that was a dream to me. And also, when I was young, my parents used to have to spell the word dump when they were going to the dump to, you know, a truckload of junk. They would uh, have to you know, it's like when you take your dog for a walk, you have to say W-A-L-K. They used to be like D-U-M-P. <laughs> I loved going to the dump. And then I uh, I also liked the dirt, and we'd go visit my mom's cousin's farm all the time. But I like, as I grew up, I, I enjoyed music and the arts and literature. And so I really got into history and, and um, just the human story. And when I went to post-secondary school, I fully intended to be an English teacher, but I somehow didn't like the the way that they were kind of, you know, the rubrics or whatever that they were throwing out. So I wanted to go into geology because I like dirt so much, but um, that didn't work out because I needed calculus or something. So I ended up finding archaeology as a way to mix humanities and earth sciences and the dirt. Um, And so through the back door, I could take a minor in in geology and kind of get into all of that. So and I took one course in it and that was the end. It was it was uh, I was off to the races. Super cool. I love how you avoided calculus. I didn't quite I wasn't quite able to do that. I had to do calculus for my undergrad, but uh, good on you for being able to dodge that bullet. I did. Yeah. (laughs) Well, tell us about the Archaeological Survey of Alberta. What does the organization do? How was it run? What was your role uh, during the time that you spent there? Yeah, the Archaeological Survey was created in 1973 after the Historic Resources Act was passed. This was an act that was part of a, a, a slew of legislation that came out in the early 70s out of the environmental conservation movement of the late 60s and early 70s. 
And uh, so the archaeological survey was was a part of that process. Um, it's been in something called Alberta culture or, you know, the ministry name changes all the time with almost every government. Uh, now it's Alberta culture, tourism, and the status of women, I think. Um, but it's been called a million things in the past. But it's been resilient and it's been around with the name Archaeological Survey since 73. Um, its role is to do archaeological research to support uh, the regulation uh, tied to the Historic Resources Act. So that says that no one can destroy a significant archaeological site when they're doing development before proper uh, impact mitigations have been done. So the survey overlooks that process. So applications come in for, say, a pipeline or a subdivision, and it's reviewed by the archaeological survey to say, well, this is going to impact a site or it's going to impact a place that might have a site, and uh, we need to have somebody go out and look at it. And what they'll do is issue requirements that then uh, the developers are on, uh, on the hook for fulfilling, and usually what they'll do is hire a professional consulting archaeologists to fulfill those things. Reports come back to the survey. We review the reports and say, yep, good job. You know, the site's going to be avoided. Sensitive area is going to be avoided, or we need to do more work. And they just kind of look after that whole process. Interesting. I'd never heard of that organization and until now. Yeah, yeah. 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 My wife makes fun of me because people would say, oh, what do you do? And I'd say, I work for the Archaeological Survey of Alberta, like everybody knows what it is. And then I'd have to always rewind and say, I work for the government. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I imagine that you already had quite a bit of education in place in order to become an archaeologist in the first place. So I'm wondering what drove you back to school to pursue a PhD? Yeah, I, um, when I was at the Archaeological Survey, I was, uh, somebody who t- took care of a lot of their mapping and and did a lot of the the research behind where we might find sites, not where we know they are, but where we think they might be and kind of doing uh, computer modeling to figure that out. But on top of that, I was also the Northeast Regional Archaeologist. So that's the oil sands part of the province. And I took care of that process I described for that geographic region. And I got that responsibility because a lot of my... Um, previous experience in consulting was in that part of the world. So I had been really familiar for, by 2012, for about 15 years with the problems that we were experiencing up there, uh, the the gaps in knowledge that we had in in the archaeological record and the geological record. So um, I knew these things were kind of holding us back from being able to do a better job regulating the 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 resource and also just archaeologically we weren't telling the full story or couldn't get at the full story. So one day I asked a friend of mine who is a a, a professor in your science department at University of Alberta to see if he could come up into the field and kind of help with that stuff a little bit. And we went out in the field and we took a bunch of samples and we looked at a bunch of sites. And as we were walking back uh, to the truck through the bush one day, he said. Uh, you know, this would be low-hanging fruit for a PhD, which to your listeners, that is a lie. There's no such thing as low-hanging <laughs> fruit in a PhD at all, ever. It was a complete lie, uh, but I don't know, maybe he had faith that I could do it. So um, we, uh, before I knew it, a month or two later, I was in the program and, and off to the races. 
And I did that because I cared about that problem. I didn't need it for my job. I, you know, I didn't need to tick, tick box. I, it wasn't going to get me a raise. It wasn't going to get me a promotion. None of that. These problems had been bugging me for like 15 years. So, and we were always saying, well, some student's going to come along and do this work. And after 15 years of someone coming along and never showing up, I decided to be that someone. Someone was you. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, I'm just imagining, I mean, when we hear about um, a PhD, I imagine a pretty daunting process because it's such a big commitment. Can you unpack what is that process like at a high level? What exactly is involved in pursuing a PhD? Yeah, um, the the main thing is well is applying to get into school, and uh, the most important aspect of that is having a supervisor that is willing to go to bat for you, that they believe in your project and believe in your ability to complete that project. Um, everything else becomes a little bit secondary at that point. So, I mean, your grades are important. You, you have to be a good student and you have to meet the minimum requirements. But the, the most important thing is to have a good proposal and somebody who's gonna really support that and say, okay, I want this person to work on this. I have a little bit of money for them maybe to do it, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that makes a better case to the, you know, higher up administrative levels of the university. So your first step is to get in and, uh, Without a good potential supervisor and a good potential project, your chances are going to be a lot lower. So that's the first thing that you need to cover. And I was covered right away because that was the only reason I would ever have gone in was because there was a good project and, and, a, and a good supervisor. And then once you're in, there's some coursework that you have to complete and different departments have different uh, requirements for all of that. And uh, the best part about coursework in the PhD, at least where I went, which is the University of Alberta or science department, is that you can really customize your courses to, to what you need. You can take reading courses that are guided by your supervisor or another expert and whatever you're, you're, you're uh, interested in. And or you can just take, you know, courses that were always sort of a gap in your previous education. And some some have really light course requir requirements and others are a little bit heavier. Earth science is really focused towards getting you onto doing your research. So they don't have a huge uh, encumbrance of course requirements. Um, so that's important, but at, at the main thing, the main two, steps after that is your your candidacy exam and your defense and your candidacy exam is basically a thing that uh, it's an oral exam for the most part uh, some universities have an oral and written one which is really intense i only had to do an oral exam for this and this is where they kind of test your metal and say is your project actually going to contribute something original to your discipline and are you going to be able to complete it so they can ask you anything really and different departments and different committees uh, will have a different take on it and everyone will say that that is the most daunting part because you can be asked I was asked what's the difference between a hypothesis and a theory you know a friend of mine was asked he's a glaciologist he, you know worked in with glaciers for 20 years and they asked him uh, you know what's a glacier you know mm -hmm. and you can get an expert blind spot and forget that you know that stuff and then have to recall and try to explain it, it can be weird. So they really put you to the test. Once that's done, um, 
you work on your project. And depending on your field, you might have to do field work, you might have to do lab work, and you might have to just write and do a lot of research in the library, whatever, right? It depends on your project. For me, I had to complete a bunch of field work, and then I had to analyze the data from that and then write it up. And my dissertation was manuscript-based, so uh, we have the option to do four or five manuscripts that are going to go to peer-reviewed journals, not just one big tome, which is like a more traditional thing that people usually envision when they say PhD. This system is a little bit better, especially in science where it's all about publishing papers, for better or worse. You can talk about that forever, but reality is in science, the more papers you publish, the better off you are. And so a lot of departments are moving to, you do your PhD, you have four papers that you can publish pretty much right away, or at least try to get published. You do that, that's a hard slog that takes all kinds of motivation and internal uh, <laughs> psychological things, we can talk about that. And then your defense comes when you're done all that. And uh, if you've gone through your candidacy, your defense will be okay because the defense is about the stuff you just worked on. Like they don't ask you these big wide ranging questions as much. But they can be pretty tough and you know both of those experiences are you know it's like being on the stand you know uh and it can be interesting it does it the whole thing sounds completely daunting to me still so i, I was right it is a daunting process yeah. um, and what was the timeline like from um the coursework to the candidacy to the final pieces of research to the end project defense right yeah for me it was uh i got in and i did uh the coursework first uh in that, I should should have mentioned you have to get a committee together. So this is like four or five people that are going to assess your work. So that's kind of the first step. And you do your coursework and write your proposal up, which you've already written a bit of to get in. But then really you, you write a, a much more detailed document uh, that is used as raw material in your, in your candidacy. So I did coursework in the first year of my program and wrote my proposal, and that was pretty much done. Uh, and then it was moved on into second and third year of doing field work. Uh, I think it was at the end of my second or third year I did my candidacy. So, and there, it's really about scheduling at this point. There's five people who are all really busy, and you're busy, and so. Honestly, my candidacy, I probably could have done a year before, but it just takes a lot of time to get people together sometimes. And um, and I was I had so much field work to do and stuff, I wasn't going to be rushing through this thing in three years or anything. So, um, so I did that. And then um, I worked on writing the papers for a couple of years and then finished in, the, in my sixth year, uh, which I was working full-time the whole time. So, I mean, a lot of people do it faster than that um, but increasingly more people are having they have so much other s uh, things going on in their life that like I don't think a six-year term is all that long anymore wow yeah wow and I definitely want to talk with you about work-life balance but before we get into that I just want to dive a bit more into this question that drove you back to school so it sounds like you had this question that had haunted you for a very long time but I'm curious to know um, if that shifted or changed or how it actually manifested into a research question and and then how that became your research project what was that process like yeah the, the two main things that we 
struggled with up there was when did people first get there and how can we find sites of that age, right? So um, that was the main, uh, you know, that bugaboo that was in my mind for a long time. And what was the landscape like at that time? And uh, that didn't never change. That That is what I ended up writing about is, is those kind of two or three main issues. And, but it, how I got to those answers or, okay, it's not answers. That's another thing. I, when you go into a PhD, I mean, maybe you think you're going to answer a question, but you never really answer a question. What I like to say is that we significantly contributed to the problem that we were looking at or, or to addressing the problem that we were looking at. Uh, we moved the needle a little bit. Uh, you're never going to solve it, you know. I mean, and you have a whole career to keep working on this stuff. Uh, so that's one mistake I think some people think, and it can bog you down in the middle. It's like, I'm not going to answer this. Really, you're not expected to, but sometimes you can tell yourself you're expected to, but uh, a little bit of a sidetrack there. But yeah, um, the uh, the questions stayed the same, but how we answered them, I, I went down avenues I never thought I would, like, like learning about the physics of dating methods and things like that. So, yeah. Wow. And it's interesting that you're saying uh, that you don't really answer the question. Like, no. I imagine there's got to be a little bit of a frustration in that, too. You you went back to answer this big yeah. question, and you're not going to answer it fully. Yeah, there is. But I think it was, like, that was part of the process. That's what I learned doing it. You know, halfway through, I kind of realized that, well, there isn't really one answer to this. Mm-hmm. And, and especially because I had to complete a bunch of field work, and I had an image in my mind of what we would find there. And we didn't find that, right? We found something else. And But it was cool. It was really neat. But it led me down a path of having to learn all these new things that uh, I hadn't expected to need to learn and to find out just how complex what a, a simple question can be. Mm. And so you go, okay, well, here's my little bit that I'm going to chew off. And, you know, that's that's it. And I go back to, like, seminal papers in, in my field and you know, a lot of that stuff is now dated. You know, they didn't answer the question. They mm-hmm. they helped everybody who came along afterwards move it all along. And that's all we are. We're just a, a part in the continuum. We're, you know, we're moving along. Everybody's making a little bit of progress. But right. to think you're going to, like, end that, that process is... <laughs> Not insane. realistic. <laughs> it's not realistic, and it's a little megalomaniac. <laughs> well... I want to um, talk a little bit too about the psychological components of um, both the thesis defense and the candidacy, and you mentioned some of that. Um, so, what was that process like? I know it was tough. Or how did you get through it? I guess how did you kind of manage your way through those processes? Uh, yeah, you freak out a lot beforehand. Uh, it's like stage fright. You know, it's a it's a super amped version of stage mm-hmm. fright. Because it's not just, okay, this performance is going to, like, be good or bad. It's it's kind of like they're assessing whether or not you're a smart person, <laughs> you know? Well. Like, you can take it to that <laughs> level if you want. And there's always some little bit of you that's thinking that. And so, and it's a room full of people that you respect and who you, who you will always think know more than you do. And that's not necessarily true. And, and that's what a lot of people on my committee have said and many colleagues now that I have in... In academia say it's like you know you always just you just have to be one step ahead of the person in, in the room or your class you, you know nobody is this all-knowing 
person. So, but in your mind, you can definitely create that and, and it leads to great stress and sleepless nights and freaking out and feelings of, uh, incompetency and imposter syndrome and all of that stuff that is like really terrifying. Right. But the one thing that I can say, uh, for anybody who is going to do it is that it is really just three hours of your life and nobody in that room is out to get you. No one. That, that was another thing. It's like, they're there to kind of help you. Like they're there to challenge you. But it's very rare that you would go into a candidacy or a defense where people don't want you to succeed. I right. mean, that, that, that's, that's not the goal. Um, so that's really important to keep in mind. And when I got into my candidacy and everything started happening, I loved it. It was great because it just turned into a conversation with like people who were interested in my project and maybe didn't know everything about it. And then they had insights about things that I didn't know, and I learned a lot. And it turned into almost a, a conversation. Not all go like that, because that mental, you can get so worked up, and depending on your chosen defense mechanism, you can either become arrogant, which I've heard is the worst thing in the world. So if you become arrogant in a candidacy or a defense, that's probably the only time, only way you'll fail, right? Yeah. Uh, or, or you get tongue-tied and you even though you know the stuff you just can't spit it out and things like that so um it's it's important to keep it in perspective that it it might not be as heavy as you make it out to be in your mind right and so are you as a student are you given any tools to deal with any of that in terms of training or something to prepare you for that experience yeah there, there are seminars and and uh resources that i've i will admit i've seen emails for and links <laughs> to i never looked at any of them uh, uh because i'm i guess i'm a little old school i just was kind of like I, i'll do this kind of thing and sometimes you go to those things and they just it's kind of a brilliant grasp of the obvious mm. but i'm not saying that they're not worth it they might be i haven't taken them so mm. But for me, uh, the main thing was talking to other people who had gone through it. That was the most important thing. So I talked to people who had gone through their candidacy exams, and my supervisor was great. Like, I mean, he he really helped me uh, contextualize it and gave me a sense of where I was, you know, in terms of preparation and experience and knowledge. And sort of without saying you're going to be fine. He let me know I was going to be fine. Like, you know, there's these things. And I think that's what a good supervisor is. They don't want to, you know, pat you on the back and say, you're going to be great. It's, it's amazing. But he just kind of gave me this quiet confidence that I would do okay. But the number one thing for me was talking to people who'd gone through it. And especially some people gone through in the same department, maybe with some, some of the same personalities on, on the committee. And that was invaluable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, let's shift gears and, and talk about that work-life balance thing. So you started your program in 2012 and you finished in 2018. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you were also working full time. Yeah. So how did you do it? How did you strike this balance between work, school and life and, and make it all work over yeah. such a long period of time? There were times when I didn't. I will admit that. Uh, there, I was fortunate that my question related to my job to some degree. So... I could work on it at work. Um, but even though people say, okay, yeah, you can work on it, um, 
you will always feel a level of, I anyway, felt a level of guilt when I did, right? I was this, you know, I, this is my thing. I shouldn't be doing this here now. I should be doing my tasks that I've been assigned at my job. And so then you, this leads to a lot of feelings of guilt when you're doing it. And I find that a really challenging emotion to feel because uh, it just, it eats you up, right? And so I had a battle all the time about what I should be doing. Should I be doing my work? Should I be working on my PhD? And should I be paying attention to the rest of my life, right? And it's a very difficult juggling act that I didn't, that I thought I had together. Intellectually, in my mind, I'm like, okay, this is how I'm going to work all of this. But in practice, I wasn't doing it. I, I would, even when I was at home, I was thinking about either work or the PhD all the time. Like I wasn't necessarily there all the time. And so it, it was very difficult. Um, nearer to the end of, of the program, I, I started to figure out how to, how to do it. And that was at the time when I started writing, like really writing. Uh, there's something that feels, you know, you get a sense of accomplishment when you're doing it, even if it's just one paragraph or, or a good sentence. And so once that stage happened, I felt a lot more like there was a, a worth to what I was doing and, a, and a, the goal was starting to be realized. And it, that, that, that uh, you know, struggle became a lot easier because there was some sort of balance in terms of res result. Uh, and also it was, it was just really fulfilling to, to see it come together because it did come together in the end. Like it did have results that were neat and other people thought were neat. So that helped boost up a little bit of that. And then, you know, when I finished and then people asked me this question and, and uh, I realized what, where I tripped up on that stuff. And uh, one was I didn't have a plan, uh, a time management plan. I just kind of went, oh, I can do this, right? You know, it's a, what do they call it? It's like a planning fallacy or something in psychology where you think you can do everything. We mm -hmm. all think we're superhuman and we're not because the world is not what we see in our heads. It's what really happens. And we always see this like flat plane that we're just going to walk across to the finish line. But it's not, it's, you know, it's hill and dale and valley and lightning strikes and all these things. Um, so what I, I didn't go in with any sort of plan, you know, like I'll do this at this time and I feel like I should have done that, you know. Right. Yeah. Is that something that you would recommend for? I recommend that to everyone. Yeah. I say have a very, very clear mental uh, concept of of where this fits in your life relative to your work and the rest of your life, you almost have to compartmentalize it. I think I let it bleed into too much of the rest of my life, but, uh, and you say to yourself and if you're working to your employer or to your family, I'm working on this now here at this time and you know it and I know it and we're all agreeing to this and that's going to happen now. And, I think that is really important, way easier to say than it is to do. Right. Speaking yeah. of agreeing to things, um, you answered in your guest questionnaire that you're married. Um, I'm just curious to know, was your spouse fully on board with this PhD, or how did your going back to school uh, journey play into your family life at that level? Yeah, um, yeah, she was fully on board. I had started it the year before we met, um, so I was kind of already a little bit in it. 
Um, but she was completely supportive the whole time because she knew um, about the how I, I was going in with this question and it wasn't, you know, it seemed to be coming from a, a true space, which was, you know, I think important to her. But she did see and helped me a lot in, in contextualizing it, you know. Uh, she was really the most supportive person in terms of it, uh, the effects it was having on, on myself as a person and on our relationship. Uh, she went above and beyond the call to, uh, to like, uh, smooth it out and was on the boat for all of the rough rides. Like, it, and it, it did, it got really kind of hairy at times and, and she was there. So she believed in it the whole time. And I don't, I've never detected any sort of level of, of animosity or, resentment of of going into it like she knew it was going to be hard and in the end when it was finished the reward was great and she saw that and we both enjoy it and look back on it now as a journey yeah Yeah. I've had so many conversations with people about this and um and always it seems that if your spouse and your family is on board it just makes it that much easier to accomplish your goals yeah Um, So in addition to this time commitment, there's also this big financial commitment in pursuing an advanced degree. And I'm just wondering, how did you manage that? And did you find it easier or harder at this stage in life than, say, during your undergrad? It was easier. I had more uh, options. So um, one is that you're making money already. So you kind of have some and, and you can, you know, offset costs out of your own pocket a lot easier uh, now than when I was a young person. But um, also at work there, there was these education funds or professional development funds that you could get and that, that would partially fund parts of it. Um, I would do jobs on the side or like research assistantships or things like this. And there are scholarships that you can a- apply for too. And I think that I was, I won't, uh, I had a lot more experience writing, uh, say like applications. And actually at my job, I had assessed applications for grants and things like that. So I had a bit of an up in that I knew what people were looking for, like on a very visceral or practical basis. So I could write a pretty good grant proposal, I think. And and so I would, a lot of my field work was funded through these granting agencies and, and a little bit of, uh, you know, other funds. So uh, it was definitely easier uh, to do as a as an older student yeah one of the benefits yeah for sure yeah um did you ever have any of those moments where you questioned why you were doing this and just asking yourself you know why am i taking this phd and and how did you deal with those times when things got really challenging yeah you know what i don't think i ever had the why am i doing this because i knew why i was doing it that question was so important to me and i knew that in some way, I would be working with this stuff for a long, long time, even after I'd finished this. So I never had that moment. I had the moments of why am I, why am I going through the, sort of the, the, the academic hurdle of this? I could do all this work anyway if I wanted to without having the added pressure of having to complete the courses and pay for tuition forever and all of that. Um, so I did have that question. But I knew that that was sort of like an icing on the cake side of it. If I, I could get the mental satisfaction of completing the project without the, the letters or the papers. But, I mean, that's not the reality of the world, you know? Like, you need 
that to to move on just professionally or whatever you know and, and you want maybe a little bit of that recognition so um i never had like that huge crisis but i know lots of people who have and i've talked to them you know and they've come to me and they've asked like why why am i doing this i think i don't i don't think i'm gonna do this you know and i always would come back to do you care enough about that question if you don't then don't do it it's not worth it at that point if you're doing it like to get your ticket you know and you're like i want to be a prof so i'm going to get a phd man that that's not going to be a good experience it's going to be so much harder Right. You need to really have that desire to not answer the question, but contribute to answering the question. Um, So your story has taken an interesting twist recently. You shared that you didn't go into the PhD program with the intention of moving into an academic role. However, you are now in an academic role at McEwen University. Can you tell us how that occurred and why you chose to move into teaching? Yeah. Um, During my PhD program, I did a lot of uh, teaching, right? You know, like helping out in classes and, and labs and things like that. And I really enjoyed it and I always have. And when I was a consultant uh, and also at the government, when you uh, run field crews, you're, you're essentially a teacher all the time. You know, we would get every summer, you'd get a new class of 10 people that you were taking out into the middle of nowhere and you were completely responsible for them. <laughs> and Maybe they didn't, they didn't know how to dig a unit, you know, uh, um, or a, even a shovel test, you know, and you would have to teach them that from scratch. And through the whole summer, you would see how they would come along, you know, and then maybe they'd return the next year and they'd be a little bit better. And I, that was the most rewarding thing. And when I worked at the government, I had a lot less of that experience. And I would say, you know, to, to my wife and friends, I was like, that is the thing I miss about consulting. And then when I was teaching at the university, I saw that that was kind of the same thing. I was like, I really like this. I like teaching, you know, and that, that was it. You know, it was, that's great. And then uh, when I was writing as well, I was realizing, you know, I initially wanted to be an English teacher because I loved reading and writing. And as I was writing this stuff and it was actually coming together into these papers, it was so rewarding, you know, like, and I'd forgotten for like years how good it feels and uh so you know those those things had piled up in my mind and then it just so happened that uh a a person left the position at McEwen that I have now that you know the timing was right and I was like I think I could get this job and I thought about it and I thought about my love of teaching and the fact that I could do more research there at the government you're really locked down in what you can do right you can do research but you know, not everything you want to do is allowed, you know, and it's not, not, not allowed is they can't, they can't support it. They just can't, you know? And so here you have a lot more freedom to kind of follow out your, your mind. So, uh, the timing was right. And my skill set there, I'm, I'm, I'm a very Alberta based person and I have a lot of practical experience teaching, you know, young people who are just starting out in a field how to how to get comfortable in it and all these little skills that you don't usually get taught at university like uh how do you not flip over in an atv how do you fill out a safety sheet what kind of paperwork am i going to look at they don't teach you this stuff but they really they should because when when i'm on the other side of the desk hiring someone and i have somebody who says i know the uh you know 
archaeological theory of blah 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 and then the next person has the same thing but they say I know how to conduct, uh, how to fill out a safety form or I know that I need to apply for a permit at this time that person gets the job so you know and at McEwen they're really really keen on that you know they're really keen on like giving students a a different kind of experience than you get it. I'm thinking not flipping the ATB is a pretty important skill set to know. (laughs) It is. That said, it's not as easy as it sounds. Um, So yeah, so the timing was right and my skill set matched very well what they were looking for and I made the leap. So it was, and I'm very, very happy there now. And so it was crazy. It It was a long journey. And I didn't expect this to happen, but it did, so. That's fantastic. Great. It's yeah. meant to be, obviously. Yeah. Well, for those contemplating a PhD, what's the one piece of advice you wish someone had given you before you started on the journey? Uh, the one piece would be this time and mental headspace management. Uh, do this before you get into it and see if it's practicable for you. And be very, very honest with yourself maybe talk to other people about it uh you know and and people that know you well yeah talk talk to your family your spouse uh and say do you think i could do this this is the amount of time i'm gonna have to do this is this is my coursework this is my candidacy if you're working talk to your employer and have a very clear sense of how much you can work on it if you can at all uh that's very very helpful and stick to that. You know, it's the hardest thing to stick to it, but um, really do that. And I think that you'll have a smoother experience uh, through the program. And also, I think that we put way just so much pressure on ourselves in, in these programs. We think it's it's like, I don't know, like a PhD has, it, it does, it has a little bit of a an aura to it. You know, it's like the top of the academic achievement thing and so you feel you're always going to feel am I worthy of this and you totally are I mean if you're in it for the right reasons you are worthy of it don't even think about that and it's also not as important as you think it is like you know like I know that a lot of stress that I hear from from PhD candidates is is uh you know, how they're going to measure up uh, in their field. Like, is my research going to be as important as XXX? And, and nowadays you can go look on a website and find out that somebody that you went to undergrad with is, you know, the superstar of the whatever. And you're like, well, I don't know if I'm going to do that. I hear that a lot. And it's like, that is not the goal. If that's your goal of doing this, just don't do it. Um, keep your, your eye on your lane, you know, steer between your ditches because if you're looking at other people, it's just going to be really difficult for you. But I see it a lot in, you know, in grad cohorts, you know, there's, there's always these different personalities and some people are always like, oh man, I was up until four last night and I was working so hard and I'd be like, oh, I was drinking until 3.30, <laughs> you know, and, and yet, guess what? We both got our PhDs in the end. Everybody's a little bit different. And, but it's, it's hard. Sometimes you kind of look at the other person's paper, you know, and don't do that. It's, it's a disaster. That was another benefit of being older doing it. I didn't do that. You know, when I did my MA, I had a little bit of that, but now not at all. I just, I didn't care at all what other people were doing or achieving. Didn't care. 
not one little bit. That's um, such a healthy perspective to yeah. have. Absolutely. Well, Robin, it's been really great speaking with you, and I've really enjoyed hearing your story. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing that. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you're listening to a show about going back to school, chances are you're really curious about all kinds of things. Well, here are two things you may want to check out. Taproot Edmonton is your source for curiosity-driven coverage of our city, cultivated by the community. Each week, you can subscribe to a round of newsletters that gives you a deep dive on particular topics, such as food, tech, health innovation, arts, music, regional news, or city council. More importantly, as a member, you get to support local journalism and stay incredibly informed. Learn more at taprootedmonton.ca. And with a podcast called Let's Find Out, you know you're going to learn something new. Host Chris Chanyang Phillips takes you on a journey to discover Edmonton's history with a deep dive into both serious and quirky questions, like what really happened to workers during construction of the high-level bridge? And what's behind our passion for green onion cakes? Chris is an engaging storyteller, former Edmonton historian laureate, and Star Trek Deep Space Nine fan. Let's Find Out is part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB Financial. Find it and other great shows at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Now back to our show. It's a long road to a PhD, so you should enjoy the process. That's my big takeaway from my conversation with Robin. One of the biggest challenges in managing any educational process is managing yourself your state of mind, your motivation, your fears, your doubts, all that inner dialogue that either propels you forward or holds you back. In my program, I'm so thankful to be supported by my amazing cohort. You met some of them this season and last season on episode one of both seasons. Go back and have a listen to either show if you missed them. They're fantastic people. These are the folks who keep me grounded and sane. In a PhD program, it sounds like the emphasis is on your advisory committee and especially your supervisor. It's a different relationship, though. The power dynamic is different in that these folks are not only your support, but also are judging your success or lack thereof. In some ways, it feels like a lonely journey compared to what I'm doing. At the end of the day, nobody will care about your question as much as you do so it better be enough to sustain you for six long years. Lastly, I'm still wrapping my head around this idea that you don't fully answer your question, that you need to be comfortable with contributing to a body of work. I'm struggling with this as I land on my own research question, because I think we all want to do that big save the world research project, and that's not a realistic expectation to have. So I'm getting over it and figuring out what my contribution will be. And I'm going to make sure I find an amazing supervisor, just like Robin did. I know my cohort will be there for me, but this part of the journey, my final research project, it feels a little more solitary, a little more like the PhD research process that Robin described. That's our show today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like the show, please give us a rating. It helps other people connect to us. You can reach me at backtoschoolagain.ca or at schoolagainpod on all the usual social channels. I'd love to hear your story. 
Back to School Again was recorded at the Norquest College Innovation Studio, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homeland of First Nations and Métis peoples. A huge thanks to our sponsor, Norquest College, for supporting the show and to our talented technical producer, Corey Stroder. Back to School Again is proud to be affiliated with the Alberta Podcast Network. Find out more at albertapodcastnetwork.com. See you next time.